Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 20th, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for today's meeting. The share ID number for Friday's meeting, October 18th, is 5338. The whole point of moving through the steps is to have the big book's biggest promise fulfilled in your life, a spiritual awakening. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Step 12 begins by promising you that if you apply the previous 11 steps in your life, you will have a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Those of us who have had a spiritual awakening are now charged with a responsibility, a responsibility to carry this message. Joining us this morning is Scott Kay. Scott, who resides in New York, is a recovered compulsive overeater, a loyal servant of, of, of Overeaters Anonymous, dedicated to carrying this message to the compulsive overeaters who still suffer. Welcome to A Vision for You, Scott. Good morning. Hello? Yes, good morning, Scott. Thank oh, you hey, for joining us today. Can you hear me today. clearly? I'm, I'm yes. Again. Can you hear? Yes. Okay, great. Sounds good. Go right oh. ahead. Oh, so I'm I'm right on. Okay, that's it. Um, You're hi, right on, morning, folks. I'm right on. Okay, thank you, folks. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm gratefully recovered compulsive overeater, just like Leah said. Um, I do reside in New York. I'm in the Bronx uh, currently. Uh, I've actually resided across the country and and have traveled um, our fellowship. I've visited our fellowship. I've been part of our fellowship for 22 and a half years. I uh, joined OA in uh, June of 1991. All right, not 22 and a half years. Almost 22 and a half years. And I um, are currently abstinent uh, ten and a half years um, since uh, March third, March sixth of two thousand three. Um, I'm currently maintaining a three hundred and twenty pound weight release. Um, I call it a weight release because I typically want to find anything I lose, so I don't call it weight loss. Um, just to give a few stats, you know, just to get, get people um, interested or, or at least um, knowledgeable of who I am. Um, again, I joined OA. I'm forty three. And again, this is 2013, so I'm 43. I joined OA in 1991. So I've been in OA longer than I haven't been in OA, which is always a cool thing. Um, I've been in OA, obviously, my entire adult life. Um, One of the sayings or one of the uh, whatever's uh, out there say that when we first pick up, we stop growing emotionally. So when I came in at 21, I was probably an emotional 10-year-old. Um, as far as as growth goes. And I'll share a little bit about myself to make you familiar with me before I I get into the steps in carrying this message, which is the title of today's talk. And um, basically, like I said, I joined OA. um, Before coming to OA, I'll give you the backstory. Um, I first discovered compulsive overeating at the age of eight. And I guess the age of eight only because of school pictures. I look at my second grade school pictures at the age of seven. I'm skinny. I'm, I'm actually... Small. I'm actually thin for my age, um, according to my mother and other people. You know, my mother says you were skinny like a rail. And then I look at my third grade school pictures at the age of eight. I'm chubby. 
And then, you know, fourth grade at the age of nine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I started growing. Um, I remember the first compulsive bite. And, I, you know, again, I don't know what age, maybe seven and a half, maybe eight, who knows. I just remember being yelled at by my mother or being slapped in the face by my mother because that's something she would do all the time. And I ran into the uh, refrigerator, just ran into the kitchen, opened up the refrigerator, grabbed the first thing I saw, which was an orange, ran into my bedroom, ripped it apart, and ate it as quickly as possible. And for some, somehow, some way, in some shape or form, that orange did for me what nothing else ever did in my life. Again, I'm eight years old, so I didn't have much of a life. However, that orange just did a whoosh over me and, and made me feel better. And just to say, I chased that better, like with all good drugs or, or any drugs out there, including food, especially with sugar and, and white flour and lots of uh, other other stuff that, that's out there that, that uh, you know, we have issues, many of us have issues with. Um, these things, they, I started chasing the high. So by the time I came into, you know, OA at 21, I had already been driving a car. I, I already had been binging. I would, my binges were so much, I would have a 50 candy bar a day habit. I would eat, forget about pints. People, I'm, I'm curbing my language because I was asked to. So forget about, you know, pints of ice cream. I was minimally half gallons or full gallons of ice cream. And, you know, just, and I do mention foods, so if that's an issue for you, I'm sorry. But, you know, I live in New York City. You can't walk a block in New York City without being tempted by every, every sign, shape, form, everywhere. So, you know what? If, if a word mentions and bothers you, then feel free to hang up and listen next week or listen to last week's recording by my sponsor, Roberta, who I'm grateful to follow and also kind of nervous to follow because, you know, how can I follow her? I mean, she's an amazing human being and been a beacon in my life. Um, and so... You know, just growing up in my home, um, and this is how I came into OA, growing up in my home was myself and my brother. My brother, um, again, this is an anonymous program, so I expect anonymity here. My brother is a special needs. Um, he was born in 1966. So obviously if he was born these days, they would put him somewhere in the autism spectrum. Back in 1966, they called it borderline retarded, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Um, meanwhile, you know, he, he was, you know, he, he grew in whatever, like me, and when I, by the time I was 20, I was over 400 pounds, and by the time he was 24, because he's four years older than me, he was completely emaciated um, to the point where he started going in and out of rehabs um, for bulimia and anorexia, and at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, they diagnosed him as atypical um, bulimorexic. And as much as I would eat the food and hold on to the food and grab onto that food high and fall asleep and just, you know, wake and then just dissolve all the issues in my world with food is as much as he just would vomit it up or just not talk about it at all for, you know, or just not eat at all for, for days on end. So he came out of his seventh rehab. Again, he's special needs, so it's not like the typical rehab where it's 28 days, you go this, you go there, and blah, blah, blah. He came out of his seventh rehab with a list out of the seventh one, and I'm going to say it again, with a list of OA meetings in the Bronx. And, you know, of course, my mother looks at me and, you know, she looks at me as I'm the normal one, you know, because he's special needs. So I'm, I'm, quote, unquote, the normal one in the family. Meanwhile, I'm over 410, I'm only 450 pounds at this point. And she looks at me and, and you know, I, 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 of course, am in charge of driving him because I'm the, I'm the family driver to his first meeting. And I drive him to his first meeting, which was held at a, at a synagogue in the Bronx, which is no longer active. The synagogue closed down, et cetera. And 
I drove him to his first meeting, and you can imagine us walking into the synagogue. I'm 450, 460 pounds, he's, and I'm 6'1". He's 6'3", and 130 pounds. Seriously. The woman at the synagogue looks at me and says, oh, it's that way. And I turned around and said, no, no, it's for him. And, of course, you know, hopefully half of you are laughing because that's my little joke that I get laughter from when I qualify because that makes me, you know, pumped up to, to continue sharing. Um, but that's, you know, I, I proceeded, he proceeded to go into the meeting, I proceeded to go back to my car, I knew I had an hour and a half, I ran over to Three Boys from Italy in the Bronx, and I binged my head off, I probably, God knows what the hell I ate at that point, and just ate and ate and ate, um, cleaned up, drove back to the synagogue, picked him up at 9.30, and this is the only pitch I will make for any OA literature, only because I'm a big book guy, and I'm only a big book guy, and the people in my world know that I'm a big book guy. He got into the car and was like, oh, my God, this is the most incredible thing ever. I stood, in, I stood in front of the room. You know, it was one of those rooms, if you've been around, you know, one of those OA rooms where you've got to go to the front, stand up, and, and share. Your three-minute share is not from your seat unless, you know, you're 500 pounds or something, you know, or, or disabled. You're getting up and walking to the front of the room and sharing for three minutes. So he did that. They let him go for five minutes, apparently, and he started crying, and then they all started crying. They gave him hugs and kisses, blah, blah, blah. He ha- and, of course, he handed me the beginner's kit, which at that time was not a formal beginner's kit. In 1991, they, they handed him just a bunch of pamphlets. Um, he didn't have any money, so they gave it to him for free because at that time they were charging 15 cents for this one, 20 cents for that one, 40 cents for this one. Most meetings these days absorb our beginner's pamphlets and, uh, you know, for the beginners only, of course. Excuse me as I take a drink. Um, so this was June 4th, and this was a Tuesday night. And I looked at this thing, and I was like, oh, whatever, OA, you know, whatever. I knew about AA because I had an aunt who was an AA, and my mother helped her. My mother brought her to her first re- you know, her rehab, and then she had been seven years sober. Um, and then I said to my mom, when I got home, I started reading the, the Q&A pamphlet, the OA Q&A pamphlet, which is still out there, not the questions, not to this, not to that, but the OA Q&A pamphlet. Um, I think OA has a 15-question pamphlet. A has a 44-question pamphlet, which is insane and ridiculous. Um, but in any case, just to, just to um, for brevity, I looked at the pamphlet. I saw that it was free. I saw that that it was you know everybody was welcome. Um, I heard my brother's stories of this and that and the wonderfulness. And I said to my mom, I said, Well, mom, do you think I need this? And my mom says, Oh no, Scott, no, he's sick. You know better. And that got me thinking, I know better? I'm 400 and plus, you know, 50 pounds. How do, how, what do I know? How do I know better? And my mother, you know, and then I started thinking back, you know, just like Bill does in, in pages 11 and 12, 10, 11 and 12, all that is basically going on in his mind during his talk with Evie in the, in the kitchen of his home while he's drinking and Evie's talking about religion. And... And, um, of course, Bill entering the hospital and having his spiritual experience and, and, you know, we're basically discovering step two and then, you know, devoting himself to step three and propelling into the program of action. I said, you know what, I said to myself, I've been in trouble with my brother before. I fought with him. We used to have play fights. We used to break shit, excuse the language, and I would be sent to my bedroom. He would be all right to go sit in the living room and watch TV, but I would be sent to the bedroom. I was always the one to get in trouble. And I said, you know what, I don't know better. I looked at that meeting list, and I said, guess what? I'm going with you Thursday, and I'm walking in. I walked into my first meeting, and, you know, I'm not going to get into a lot of this, but um, I'll give you a little bit of, of what it was like before again. I had never 
kissed a girl before walking into LA, no dates, no any sort of sexual or any sort of anything. Um, I didn't know how to eat with a knife and a fork. My, my meat and my, my food was always cut and prepared for me. Um, I ate in my bedroom all the time because, you know, basically in my home, my mother made food and this and that. My dad always ate something different for some reason. And we always brought out food to different corners of the house and ate it. And it was just weird. So I had no eating habits. I had nothing. And I walked in and I, and I got up and I was the biggest person in the room, of course. I got up, held the hands of the two women who were three times my age. One of them was three times my age. One of them was at least twice my age. Again, I'm 21. And, and they held my hands. We said the serenity prayer. I didn't know it, so I just stayed quiet while they were saying it. That hand holding right there was the very first time I had held the hand of a woman for more than two seconds or more than my, just my mother um, in my lifetime. So OA immediately started teaching me how to be human how to hold the hand of another human being, and, and, and it's okay to touch another human being when, when appropriate, of course, and, you know, just live my life and, and just learn. And from that point, these women and men took me under their wing and completely just, you know, helped me and, and everything. So just to fast forward a little bit to a few months later um, to, say, to tell you how I got into the big book and how I've stayed with the big book so, so earnestly, just a few months into my program, somebody said, Scott, why don't you go to, you, you got to go, actually, they said you got to go to this Thursday night meeting. I'm like, well, it's a meeting about members in relapse, about getting out of relapse, and it's all people sharing who are in relapse. And that's just, that's just and I, again, I even had these instincts back then. Uh, I, I didn't want to hear people in relapse sharing about being in relapse or get, trying to get out of relapse. I wanted to hear people who were recovered and people who I can learn from. And I didn't even know I had these instincts, but I was told that the meeting had changed to a big book meeting and I should go to this meeting no matter what. So I said, all right, I did whatever I was told back then. I, I just said, you know what, I've done nothing with my life and I'm going to go do this thing. I went there, there was this beautiful silver-haired woman sitting there, and again, you heard her qualify last Sunday, um, and she had a tape and she had a tape player and she sat there and the meeting, you know, the big table. The, again, this was my very first meeting. But, again, now this time, Thursday nights, it's changed. So, you know, remember I told you it was my very first meeting on Thursday night and whatever, that meeting, now fast forward three months, it's now changed to this meeting where this woman plays the tape of these two alcoholics talking about the big book. And I've always been afraid of the big book because the big book mentions all this stuff about God. And yeah, I have a lot of a, a lot of religious baggage. Um, I uh, just again telling you a little bit more about my story, just because we're going to get into step one, you know, so the steps really, really quickly, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on today. Um, the steps with, with step two and step three, I really had issues. And looking at and looking at the steps, steps two, three, five, six, seven, eleven, all mention God, Him, power greater than ourselves. It scared the hell out of me. Because I had I had the most horrible relationship with God. I, I was sent. I was a non-religious, fat, white, and Jewish kid growing up in the Bronx projects, if you can imagine. And I was sent to religious school because my parents had an opportunity to send me there, basically for free or for whatever they can afford, and send me there. 
and um, I learned the religion, and it wasn't a bad thing. I, I don't look bad back on it horribly, but at the time, the, the folks who were doing it were very militant against non, non-religious people, and that I had to you know, be part of the group that turned other people religious. It was sort of like if you were religious and the other person wasn't religious and you were both sitting in a boat, it was as if the other person is drilling a hole through the boat to sink the boat. So I had grown up with this whole God thing where if I didn't sit, stand, wear this, wear that, um, do this, do that, pray this time of day, pray that time of day, I was going to hell. If I ate a certain way and didn't eat the right type of foods, I was going to hell. And the thing about it was that if I knew that I was sinning, it was going to be ten times worse. So that was a big part of my compulsive eating because I stopped. I ran away from these people and uh, I had all this God fear in my head. So walking into OA, I was just so scared of of this spiritual program. But this walking into this meeting and listening to these two alcoholics talk about, and everybody knows who the two alcoholics are, and if you don't, you know, I'm going to give my number, and my number will probably be repeated multiple times. You can call me and I'll tell you. But I listened to these two alcoholics and then closed it, and then my eventual sponsor would, would start talking about, you know, opening up the big book and then basically start reading a paragraph at a time. We were reading the forward to the first edition, and she was stopping and talking about stuff. And I was like, well, why are we, why don't we go to page one? Well, what's there in the forwards? She told me what was there in the forwards. Then we read to the forward to the second edition the following week. And then the second week, we did part two of the forward to the second edition because it's that rich. Um, I can actually probably do a two-hour dissertation on the forward to the second edition, fast-forwarding 22 years. So, you know, looking at the big book, and again, now I'm going to get into the steps in the big book, and as I walk through the steps, I'm going to share about how I took the steps and how I, how I, take this, how I give the steps to others. So let's look at the big book a little bit. And we look at the cover page, not the very first page, not the very, you know, depending on if you have a hard cover, soft cover, whether you have a fourth or third edition. I roll with a third edition big book. I'm one of those people who just haven't changed. You know, again, change is tough for a lot of us. Um, I do not own a fourth edition big book. However, I do know a few page changes, et cetera. And, of course, the, the basic text is all the same. Um, and a doctor's opinion is different by two pages. So I can live with that. So looking at the, at the cover page of the first edition, it says Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And I say to my potential sponsees, new sponsees, old sponsees, people who are coming to me after 40 years in program and wanting a change because they just can't, they, they just can't get abstinent, and they look at me and I say to them, I'm like, why are we looking at this? And I say, well, because you've asked me to sponsor you and this is what I do. So if you don't want what I do, then you won't do what I did. And they say, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. You know, let's go. I said, well, what are the two most important aspects of that sentence? And most people eventually get what, what my thought is. Actually, I usually ask them what they think the two most important aspects and what I think the two most important aspects would be, knowing me. And most of the people who have been around 30 and 40 years know me because, you know, I've been pretty popular or had made myself popular in New York meetings all over, everywhere from Connecticut, Westchester, through New Jersey and, and New York, et cetera, and then moved away for a few years and then came back and, and shared more recovery after a horrible relapse in the middle, which I will share about soon. Um, so, again, looking at this, so I look at the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism, and, of course, in the first edition of the big book, it says the story of, of 100 men and women who have recovered from alcoholism. I look at this as saying, well, how many thousands or 100 men and women, that's number one. 
because number one says that it's not just one coop writing a book about, you know, how to get through alcoholism. You know, there's a billion coops writing a book every friggin' day. And, you know, some of, the, some of the stuff is helpful and it works and some of the stuff isn't. It's 2013 and if you go on the internet, you're plagued by a billion different ways and a billion different diets and a billion different ways to get out of our, our disease and, and to stop thinking about it as a disease and looking at it as a diet and weight loss and, and this and that and that and that and that. And I tell people, you know what, if you think that, that this isn't an answer, then please go try some controlled eating. You know, and just like the big book says, go try some controlled drinking. Please go out there and try again. I, I, I beg you to go out there and keep trying. But if you stick around, my old joke, well, it's back a little bit, but my old joke used to be if you stick around for 90 days, maybe 30 days, I guarantee hosts will still be making Twinkies in 90 days from now. Um, again, hosts have stopped making Twinkies last year, so I changed it to Nabisco will still be making Oreos because God knows they'll never stop making Oreos. Um, but anyway... And then the second part of this is have how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism is the word recovered. They could have very easily written in the, with the word are recovering from alcoholism. They put recovered, and it's a past tense. And I'm not going to get deep into why I call myself recovered. It's basically because this book constantly, constantly talks about being reco recovered alcoholics, people with whom the problem has been solved, you know, things along that nature. And, and I'm a believer that if I stay in fit spiritual condition, that I will, I will have this, this program. I will, I will get this and I will be able to carry this message, which is, of course, part of being in fit spiritual condition. So step one, we basically have step one. Um, I basically told you about step one. It was, you know, step one talks about unmanageability. Uh, step one talks about powerlessness. I knew that if I had you know, something that, that was out of the ordinary, i.e. a third bowl of cereal or even a second bowl of cereal. I mean, I used to eat cereal boxes. Of course, I ate cereal boxes. That's, you know, my um, But the thing is, I would have a, a bowl of cereal, and on the box, it would say, a complete part of this nutritious breakfast. And it would have pictures of, mil of eggs and milk and toast and juice and all sorts of stuff. And I would say, well, I'm not having all that. Let me have another bowl and another two bowls. And then, of course, the whole box would be eaten, and then everything else in the house would be eaten, and everything I can do. So, you know, in the doctor's opinion, it clearly, and I'm, I'm looking at page, uh, in the third edition, it's, it's page XXVI, page 20, uh, Roman numeral 26. In the fourth edition, it's Roman numeral 28, I believe. And it says, men and, at the very bottom, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So I tell uh, us compulsive overeaters, you've got to replace the word alcohol if you, if you need to. If you don't, that's fine. If you can live with it, that's cool. Replace the word alcohol with what's plaguing you. Replace the word alcohol with food. Replace the alcohol with, you know, whatever it is that's blocking you from, from your life and, and that you're using to not live your life. Because that's what, that's what food does, and that's what, what our disease does. And I tell people, I ask them all the time, what is the number one thing this disease steals from us? And the answer is time. For me, the answer is time. The, the, the disease steals time for me because I'm 43. And I, yeah, God bless. I've been in program 22 years. I've accomplished some really, really cool stuff in the last 22 years that, that I can share for hours and in person or on the phone with. But at the same time, I have people walking in and sponsoring people who are my age and who are, you know, 10 years, 15 years younger, and just their whole lives have just been spent. And, and yeah, they're doing some constructive stuff and they've built somewhat of a life, but they, I see that they're brilliant people. 
I, I mean, I've been told I'm a brilliant person. Meanwhile, I know that I left, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I left school when I was 14. I got away from that, that religious place, and I ended up with a GED by the time I was 18, and I've never been to college. But at the same time, OA has taught me how to talk to human beings, how to look people in the eye and tell them the truth. Um, at my very first meeting, I looked at the leader of the meeting at the end of the meeting. She walked up and said hello and, and introduced herself. Um, and I said, I, I was so moved by the meeting, I looked at her and I said, wow, this is the one place I'm never going to lie at. And she looked back at me and she said, take it easy, Scott, it's your first meeting. Um, and I laugh and then other people laugh at that. But at the same time, it's been true. You know, and the only lies I've told have been to myself. But anybody who asks me, any fellow who asks me, either I'll ask them not to ask that question because I'd rather not answer it um, unless they're a sponsee, which, of course, my book is open to any of my sponsees because I offer my fourth step to them just like they're going to give their fourth step to me. Um, going back to the book, you know, it, it continues in that same bottom of, of Roman numeral 26, um, Roman numeral 28 in the fourth edition, uh, it continues toward toward the bottom. They are restless, irritable, discontented until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which, of course, takes that first drink. And for me, that first compulsive bite or that first food that, that I know will translate into lots of food. Um, and I have plenty of those in my food plan. And from, most people realize that, yeah, while I'm currently maintaining a 320-pound weight release, I don't talk about food when I qualify. You, you know, I've shared a little bit about food because this is a one-hour qualification, and I'm giving you lots of history so you get to know who I am and about my first step. Because my unmanageability was the fact that I couldn't hold down, I couldn't hold down a job, that I couldn't, I had never had a relationship, I didn't know how to eat without using my hands and ripping apart food and, and eating stuff with my fingers and just, you know, messing up everything. You know, just the fact that I'd never, you know, been with a woman or kissed a girl or held somebody's hand, that's pretty unmanageable um, in my world. And, you know, and then it continues, of course, in the doctor's opinion, after they just succumb to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops, and they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that spree is knowing that I've taken that first compulsive bite, not being in fit spiritual condition is the very first part of that because obviously as a newcomer or somebody walking in, they're not in fit spiritual condition for the most part and they're doing this all the time. But for me, I know that I keep away from certain foods and certain behaviors and certain things that I know would would, would lead me to, towards a spree. And uh, so I understand that, that phenomenon of craving. And again, what is a phenomenon? A phenomenon is basically something we can't explain. We don't understand. Uh, what is a craving? A craving is a mental thing, um, for the most part. A craving is a mental thing. A craving is mostly in our minds. Yeah, pregnant women crave. They talk about pickles. They talk about this. And they talk about that. Yeah, I'm not a pregnant woman. I'm not a female. I don't know what, what a reproductive system feels like, does like, I, nor do I care at this point. What I'm saying is that most of the time a craving or, or that sense of ease and comfort is all in our minds. It's, it's the six inches between our ears that get us into trouble. It's that first thought that is always let me go have a slice of pizza, let me go grab this, let me go grab that, let me have a candy bar, it's okay. It, you know, if you look at, at the candy bar section today, I, I, it's funny because I look at the candy bars, I haven't touched a candy bar in, in you know, 10 and a half years, but I look at the candy bar section today and I see Baby Ruth, and right on the, right on the wrapper it says four grams of protein. I'm sorry, uh, you know, I'm not going to curse, but what the F does Baby Ruth, Baby Ruth have to put down four grams of protein for 
you're not eating Baby Ruth for breakfast or lunch or dinner or, you know, it's, it's a candy bar. I'm sorry. But there's four grams of protein. So they're trying to disguise themselves as something different. Whatever. I, you know, I mean, they can disguise themselves all I want. These days, I do know better because I'm in fit spiritual condition. Um, so, again, that was my step one. And the same way with other people. And, again, walking through Bill's story, I learned about step one through his unmanageability and powerlessness to the alcohol and to the things that were that were killing him. You know, in Bill's story, on page six, in the middle, um, in the second, in the first, the first main paragraph where it says remorse, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness, at the bottom it says gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. For me, I was an oblivion eater. I'm a big numbers guy. Uh, however, I do understand anorexia, bulimia, under-eating, overeating, every piece of our disease because I've been around so long and know lots of stuff about the food world and the diet world and, and everything. And, of course, had a brother growing up just like it. But for me, two bottles in oblivion means 30, 40, 50 candy bars, ice, all sorts of shit, and just disappear into the world. When I'm in oblivion, you cannot call me, you cannot text me, you cannot reach me, um, you know, unless you're at my door, banging at my door, you know, or something. You know, it just you can't get to me because I'm in the throes of the disease. So getting out of step one, looking at step two, step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's three parts right there. I look at it as, as I was taught, again, you know, I was taught, this is, I was trained. I consider it being trained. It's a training. And I consider when I, when I sponsor people, I'm training them, not only on how to live their lives, but on how to carry this message to others. That's the main, that's the main purpose of why I sponsor. I mean, I sponsor, of course, to keep my 185-pound body, but I also sponsor um, to, to help others because by helping others, I get out of my head and the six inches between my ears and I'm into their head. Plus, it keeps me fresh in the big book. It keeps me always reading this big book backwards forward and understanding this big book backwards, forwards, and upside down because I get others through it. And, yeah, I go through the stories, and I pick and choose through lots of stories. Um, you know, so looking at step two, what is the idea of step two? This step two, there's three different pieces to it. There's the idea of belief. There's the idea of a power greater than ourselves. And then there's the idea of... of insanity. So the big book cleverly writes three entire chapters devoted to step two. There is a solution, talks about the, the um, belief, morbid alcoholism, talks about the insanity, and we agnostics, of course, touches on and, and, and talks all about the idea of a power greater than ourselves, and as does a little bit of, of there is a solution and, and maybe a few touches in morbid alcoholism, but for the most part, we agnostics you know, does that. Um, so looking at belief, what is belief? Belief is not faith. It's just belief. If I tell you that, that this laundry detergent will get rid of your ring around the collar, as some laundry detergents did back in the, back in the 60s and 70s on TV commercials, and you went and went to that supermarket, you went to that supermarket to pick up that detergent on belief. You didn't know if it would really do it. You know, you just had advice from some TV commercials, maybe a couple of friends. You go there, wash your, your shirts in the laundry, which nobody does these days. Most people, uh, you know, bring their collared shirts to dry cleaners. But back then, they washed their shirts in the laundry and everybody ironed their stuff. And the ring around the collar was gone. And then, all of a sudden, there's faith. So, in the second step, all it's asking you to do is have a little bit of belief. All right, you don't have to have faith in what I'm saying or what this book is saying, more importantly, because forget about me, I'm just a messenger. Um, 
you just need to have a little faith, a little belief. A belief in that maybe this thing might work for you. You know, some people talk about a mustard seed of belief. You know, just a little, little tiny hole that, that might be open to, to maybe this thing working. And then, of course, the next idea is the idea of insanity. And, you know, there is a, more about alcoholism talks all about insanity. Um, you know, just, again, about belief. Christopher Columbus believed the world was round, and he didn't want to have to go through the Middle East because it was horrible to go through the Middle East back then, so he, went the, uh, he wanted to go west to get east. And he knew, just by his knowledge, that the world was, was round. The world believed it was flat. And everybody believed, if you go too far west, you're going to fall at the end of the world. And Christopher Columbus just went, and I'm sure the first time he went, he had somebody looking at the top saying, if you think you see the end of this world, you better let me know. And boom, you know, he, he did it, and then eventually he did it again and again, and then the world was changed, just like, you know, the big book talks about the Wright brothers, uh, believing that, you know, of course, man can't fly, and then them being bicycle mechanics weren't, you know, that much into science as much. They believed that man could fly, and, and of course, we fly all the time now. So, of course, while they believed it, the world also believed that they were insane. And insanity, and I've talked a lot about it already. I'm not really going to touch on it anymore because I, I'm, I'm feeling short of time and because I, you know, I have a half hour left and I really want to get into the meat and potatoes of our program. Um, pardon the expression, of course. The idea of insanity, you know, again, me opening up that, me raiding the refrigerator and the cabinets every Sunday night at 10 minutes to midnight because I knew at midnight I was starting my new diet and would go to sleep. Waking up the next morning, having a bowl of cereal, of course, I, like I said, looking at that bowl, looking at that box, because what else do you do when you have a bowl of cereal? You look at the box, and if you don't have TV or anything, it was back in the 80s. Um, and we were poor, so we didn't have a lot of stuff. But I looked at the box, and it would have all these things, and I would have another bowl and another bowl, and that would lead to binges. And this would happen every single weekend. This would happen every Sunday. And God forbid a New Year, New Year's was in the middle of the week. It would, you know, you, you can imagine. So I knew what insanity was. A lot of people say insanity is, is believing the same, believing that, that something, I, I forget, you know, I'm just so pumped up right now, I can't even think about the definition of insanity. Um, but basically it's, it's, it's just absence of sanity. And, you know, believing that, that if I keep doing the same thing, I, I will expect different results. That's it. Thank you. I just said to myself, all right, let me stop thinking about that, and I thought about it. Um, if I keep doing the same thing, if I keep hitting my, my head, you know, every time I have a headache and pounding my head with a hammer uh, to get rid of that headache, is that going to work? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But if we go to, there is a solution, you know, again, I know I'm talking about more about alcoholism, but if you look at there is a solution, you know, in Bill's story on page 8, and in there is a solution on page 25, they talk about the fourth dimension of existence. And, you know, when I read this stuff with, with this person at the meeting and these other people at the meeting, which then I eventually took over and started doing myself and started leading this meeting and bringing others through the big book and then sponsoring others through the big book, uh, I believed I learned what the fourth dimension of existence was. And again, we look at our program as a three-legged, you know, AA looks at it as a three-legged stool. Um, I've been told it might be a four-legged stool. Um, you know, we look at it as, emotion, as spiritual, emotional, and physical um, some people say, well, it's a four-legged stool because if you remove one of the three legs, you fall over. So it's a four-legged stool. It's emotional, mental, uh, I'm sorry, spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical. And so, again, the fourth dimension of existence to me looks like God is the first dimension. Steps one, two, and three. I can't, God can, and, and then I'll let God. So 
you know, I look at steps one, two, and three as the first dimension, which is the spiritual dimension. Steps four, five, six, and seven are the me steps. I'm learning about me mentally, emotionally, which is all basically mentally because it all takes place in my brain. You know, we might talk about our hearts and this warms our heart and this is our heart and I love you with all my heart. And But the heart is a beating mechanism that keeps us alive. Everything happens in our heads. Um, you know, again, I'm a realist. I, I can understand that. So, so that second dimension is the emotional, mental dimension, and the third dimension is the physical dimension. Is the outs- and not just the physical. You know, again, these are alcoholics. They're not talking about our weight and our bodies. They're talking about the world around us, the physical dimension. So if I get myself all right with, with, with God in steps one, two, and three, and I get myself all right with me in steps four, five, six, and seven, and then I get myself all right with, God, with others in steps eight and nine, wow, I can live 10, 11, and 12, carry this message, take daily inventory, you know, talk to my higher power, grow my relationship with my higher power and myself and others. And wow, my world, I start living an incredibly different world in this fourth dimension. And, and again, I'm only at page 25 of the book, and, and it's 164 pages that talk about this stuff. So I'm seeing promises all throughout this book. And, you know, I love to look at other promises, but, you know, again, we're walking through the steps. So step two, the insanity. We understand, most people who are listening to this right now understand insanity. And if you're new, just imagine this, you know, doing that same behavior over and over and over again, you know, going to that same nutritionist, that same diet, that same Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, you know, all the billion, trillion, thousand billion diets. You know what? Diets work. They do. They, they get the weight off. You know, they maybe, you know, if you're a bulimic anorexic, you know, rehabs work for a short time until, until the, you know, restless, irritable, and discontent comes back and, and you don't have the tools or you, don't, you, you ignore the tools because the, the power of the restless, irritable, and discontent is so powerful that it, it brings us back to the disease, which is more comfortable for us than uncomfortable. One of the things Bill mentions in his story is common sense would thus become uncommon sense. Most people who read that have to read that again and then again. I'm like, what the heck does that mean, Scott? And I share with them, well, all right, let's put it this way. If I'm always going to food for the answer, that has been my common sense my whole life because it was my common sense. Again, at the time I walked into program, I was 21. So from 8 to 21, I had a good you know, 12, 13 years of, of activity in this disease. And turning around at the at the age of 21, I was only six months in program, so over two months in program. What what's more powerful? Those eight years that I those 15 years of plus that I practice a disease, or the the six months that I might have, or the two months I might have, or the first day you might have today listening to this phone call. So, uh, the uncommon sense that they're talking about is the fact that now we start switching from moving from right to left and right to left and right to left that we like to do, you know, with our fingers to moving from left to right and left to right and left to right. Just like a friend of mine qualified the other night on step 11 and where he used to always scream, please God, please God, please God. Now he's screaming, please God, please God. I need to please God. And by pleasing God, I'm I'm pleasing myself, pleasing others, and by carrying this message and helping the world and being helpful and freeing and and happy and with a smile on my face to everybody, no matter how I'm feeling. Um, So, again, the insanity of the disease is something that's so powerful that it can lead us to this. And, you know, more about alcoholism goes through that story after story after story. You know, in, in my life, I've taken... Dozens and dozens and dozens, you know, maybe uh, lots of people, let's just say, through the steps. 
and they've had, you know, the psychic change that, and the spiritual awakening slash experience that, that's needed for them to live their lives. I've had only one person in my entire 22, 21 years of being a sponsor uh, actually look at the Jay Walker story and break down and cry because of something personal that went on that sort of related to it. But for the most part, people look at the jaywalking story as, wow, you know, this guy is crazy. And then, of, of course, then it relates to our disease. And it's the perfect story for us because, you know, while the guy has been in and out of hospitals, he eventually runs back and just just does it again. And I love it because, you know, in the Bronx, I walk down the streets and everybody's jaywalking. I have visitors come from out of town and I'm walking with them through Manhattan. And, of course, we're walking right through the middle of the block. And there's it's a green light and cars can come down any time, but I don't see any cars and I walk. And it's just what we do. Um, so, you know, jaywalking is something that's personal to me. It's a little funny. Um, but at the same time, it's earnestly serious um, because it relates so, so deeply to our disease. Um, so again, looking at the idea of higher power, I'll just share with you quickly because um, I, I want to get more into this. So the, high, the higher power piece was the most important piece, which of course it is, looking at our program. It, it steps Again, looking at our 12 steps, six of them directly mention God, power grant ourselves, him, you know, some way, shape, or form of something that's not us and bigger than us and something that's out there. Um, step 12, indirectly, by saying a spiritual awakening. Um, it used to say spiritual experience in the, in the uh, first edition of, you know, or in the original manuscript, I should say, of the big book. But the, the idea of higher power really, really affected me, so I was told, go out and go listen to other people. So, you know, you can hear me talk. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good talker. I talk a lot. I talk pretty fast. And my, my brain is always moving and, and rolling. So I was told to go out and talk, go out, go out and share, go out and, and, and listen to people. So I started, you know, using, I was told, you're, you have twice as many ears as you do a mouth. Start, you know, using your ears more than you use your mouth and start listening. So I learned how to do that in a way, which, of course, I translated into the business world and into my personal life. Again, everything I have today is because of OA. Um, and and the, the tools and, and the fellowship and, of course, the steps and the big book uh, of our program. So I listened and I finally heard somebody say, well, you know what? Something makes the sun come out at night and warms the earth and completely feels you know, the energy of our world and, and, and just gives us the, the nutrients and, and stuff that we need to live our lives you know, along with the, the proper nutrition, et cetera. Um, but the, the, the nutrients that we get from the sun and something makes the moon come out at, at, at night. I'm sorry, the sun comes out during the day. The moon comes out at night. And that moon controls the tide of the ocean. It lights the earth. It, it, does, it does what it needs to do. And then something makes food grow right out of the ground. You know? And then he turned around and he said, well, you know, that something's greater than me. And, and I looked at that. I heard that. And I went up to him afterwards. And I said, dude, you just, talked, you just said my higher power. He's like, really? Do you believe that too? I'm like, now I do. And again, this was a half-hour beginner's meeting. I sat down at, at a church in, in the middle of Manhattan and in a church basement, which we have lots of in Manhattan, and excuse me, um, just listening to that, I said, dude, I do. And, I, and he's like, Here, here's what you do, Scott. Go home and write me a classified ad. And again, he didn't take me on as a sponsor. I already had a sponsor. I already had somebody you know, working with me and trying to push me through these steps. But he said, all right, this is what you do. Go home and write a help wanted ad. At the time, again, 1991, we didn't have Craigslist. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have a lot of stuff. So go home and write a New York Times help wanted ad. Basically, four lines, 
five, four to five words per line and make it a help wanted ad for higher power and do it so that it makes sense and that you're doing it. And I turned around and I did it and it's exactly what I found and that was the beginning of my higher power which have, has just existed in my world. Um, and, you know, again, I did have a relapse in between my, my, my recoveries so I did lose my sense of, of higher power at some point but for the most part has been the greatest form of, of healing in my life because, of course, the steps just compound the idea of higher power, higher power, higher power. It just God in every single aspect. And, you know, scientists like Albert Einstein say God is everything or God is nothing. You know, just, just theists and chemists and just all sorts of people. Dr. Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, a scientist. You know, in the first 16 printings of the big book, of the first edition of the big book, it used to say dash, 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 space, dash, space, dash, 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 MD. He didn't want his name written in there. He didn't want people. He already had a, sh a, a shitty job working at, at this hospital saving people's lives, but because of the, the, the Wall Street crash and everything, he was fired from his main position and sent, and he found a job at the town's hospital in New York. And, and so he basically turned around and was helping these, these sick people who would come in and working for, for horrible pay for a doctor at the time and would do what he had to do. So he didn't want his name out there talking about spirituality and, and whatever these people believe, you should follow them. He's a scientist. So, you know, why have I spent 45 minutes talking about the first step and the second step? And this is the reason. My big book doesn't start step three, or our big book, I should say, doesn't start step three until page 60, which means if you add the doctor's opinion, the forwards, the, the preface, the table of contents, and that cover page, which I go through with everybody, that's 87, 84 to 87 pages, whatever edition you have, of information just to get to step three. And then there's another 40 pages, 43 pages at this point, to get you through steps three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and 12. So there's two steps that take 87 pages, and then there's 10 steps that take another 10 Another, another 40 pages or so? Wow, that's interesting. So that is the reason why I've spent so much time talking about steps one and two because they're so important. Step one is the problem. Step two is the solution. So once we understand the problem, once we understand the solution, we're ready for the program of action, which, of course, starts with step three. And again, step three reads, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of God as I understood him. I look at step three as a, you know, it's again, three and a half pages in the big book, you know, step page 60, the bottom of page 60 through the, the, the middle of page 63 talks about step three. There's only three, three and a half pages or so of step three in our big book. And again, it's just trying to get us away from the idea of, of us running the show and, and a power greater than ourselves being there and that same power that you might have a little bit of belief in to start living your life based on that idea. And the other thing I do is people think I'm crazy, but I start people on steps 10 and 11 immediately. I don't care if they're first day in program. I don't care you know, if they're working with me as a sponsee going through the steps. I start working with them immediately. And you know, I'll get to step 10 later, but for the most part, um, looking at step 10 and, and the words of step 10, step 10 in our big book on page 84 clearly says, we vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. 
And so I start getting people reading, you know, not necessarily believing, understanding. Uh, I don't expect them to have anything for me because, you know, they're not there yet. It's, they're only on step two at this point or step three at this point. But for the most part, they're reading pages 84 through 88 every single day. So they're seeing the tools and the direct instructions on how to, you know, sort of live our lives today because we need to live our lives today without picking up. And what's going to get people through these, these powerful steps and painful steps? You know, step four, we're looking at some really uncomfortable things in our lives. Step five, we're sharing these really uncomfortable things we never wanted to look at in our lives with another person and, of course, with God, that we're just maybe beginning to have some belief in something greater than us. Whoa, this is, this is, this is really big. So with step three, I, I look at step three as a, you heard me just snap my fingers, it's a quick, it's a, it's a catapult into action. You know, decision. What is a decision? If there's three birds, you know, everybody hears the expression, there's three birds or three frogs sitting on a lily pad and one of them makes a decision to jump, how many frogs are left? The answer is three. So because they made a decision, if you don't do anything with that decision, then you haven't really made any action. So step three is an action step. It's a verb. It's telling me to make a decision. And again, it's telling me to turn my will in my life. Those are big words. And again, it's 1930s Christian male writing. But for the most part, what is my will in my life? My will is my thoughts. My life is my actions. So if I decide to turn my thoughts and my actions to the care of this higher power, who I'm beginning to read about in these pages of 85 and 86 and 87 and 88 and, you know, all these pages that talk about helpfulness and, and honesty and, and looking at something greater than me. And, and, and so I basically grab onto a rope and jump over the ravine and just jump and let my higher power carry me through the next four steps, which are very powerful and emotional steps. So step four, you know, making an inventory. I hear so many people in the rooms and, and out of the rooms, you know, who, who have been out of the rooms for so long, just say, I couldn't get through step four. I just wouldn't get through step four. I tried it through the big book. And I was like, well, did you go horizontally or did you go vertically? You know, and for people who don't know what horizontal and vertical, because I forget what they are all the time, horizontal, you know, do, do you go vertical? Do you go up and down, meaning all the way down that first column, and, you know, of people you harmed, and then you go all the way down the second column? Or do you go across the people you harmed, um, or the people I resented, I should say, and then why my resentment, and then what part of self it affects? When you do that, you start reliving every single painful action that happened in your life. When you just go down and you do it vertically, uh, I'm resentful at mom, dad, I'm resentful at the Bronx, I'm resentful at this street corner because I tripped on it twice and when I was a kid. I re I'm resentful at my, the religion I had growing up. I'm resentful at this person, this teacher, this whatever. I had 256 resentments. I have a sponsee who had 500 resentments. God. You know, and it's whatever. It is what it is. I, you know, we say just put it out there, and he did. So, you know, it, the key is, is to get, it's an inventory. Imagine a supermarket. It's, it's, I say, you know, imagine, I'm going to use my name, Scott's Supermarket. And if Scott's Supermarket has, you know, I look at Scott's Supermarket in the back, there's some shelves in that back, uh, in that back section that haven't been looked at in a long time. They have stuff that's unsaleable. They have stuff that needs to be thrown out. They have stuff I haven't looked at in years. So I'm doing an inventory. So if I did the same inventory in my closet, I'd be pulling out this shirt. You know, I have seven shirts, five dress shirts, four pairs of jeans, seven pairs of dress pants, you know, two pairs of dress shoes, five pairs of sneakers, whatever. It's not this pair of sneakers which I walked to this this on this date with this woman who turned me down and I felt like blank and I just did this and I did that and blah, blah, blah. It's not reliving every single action. It's just an inventory. Because step five clearly says, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. 
So the exact nature is when we is when we gush about everything that went down, is when we start sharing this inventory with another person, with a sponsor. And you know, back then they didn't have sponsors. Back then, in the early days, if you read the forward to the first edition and then jump to the doctor's opinion, you know, you realize that this book is a self-help book. It's a, it's a book where doctors gave it to patients and wives gave it to husbands and friends gave it to other friends and people left it on shelves of other people that maybe they would see it. Um, you know, so it's basically a book to, to get ourselves through these steps. And they had six steps originally when, when this program started. So, you know, when I look at these 12 that I need to take these, these people through because and, and, I, I need to keep myself abstinent, I got to take people through these steps. We go through the exact nature of our wrongs. And looking at step five, six, and seven, step five says wrongs, step six says defects, step seven says shortcomings. Guess what? It's the same shit, people. Sorry for the language again. It's you know, my language. I apologize. Um, but at the same time, it's the same stuff. It's all the same thing. Bill took a creative writing course, and they told him don't use the same word twice in the same paragraph or the same thing. So, you know, for the most part, he didn't do that. So there's a billion different references to God, and he calls it Father of Light, and he calls it Creator, and he calls it this, and he calls it you know Him and Friend, and you know lots of other things in 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 the book. But for the most part, we're talking about a God, you know, that's that's just our higher power. And the word God for me is a three-letter, one-syllable word that basically means a power greater than me. It's something that's out there that's just way more powerful than me that works in my life. I use the word God because it's short, it's easy, and it's to the point. Um, again, having a, having religious baggage coming in, I can easily drift and and have that first thought of, oh, my God, and what they did to me and what I did and, oh, God, you know, this religious God is going to kill me. And then the second thought needs to be, well, the God I have today is this, 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 and that, and it's an incredibly beautiful, wonderful force that, that guides me in my life and is with me at all times. Um, because that first thought, well, if that second thought is, if I... If I answer that first thought with a second thought and a third thought and a fourth thought, guess what? That's the beginnings of a relapse. You know, they, one of the things in our program, one of the expressions is the food is the last thing to go. It is. The food is absolutely the last thing to go. It always starts with either a resentment, a fear, uh, an issue, a harm, some sort of something that we're scared of or that, we, you know, that we're angry about or something that, that crops up or even food that we see. If I, look in, if I look in, walk into a supermarket or something and I see a candy bar and I go looking at that candy bar wrapper and reminiscing and reading about it and looking about it and, 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 and romancing it and starting looking at others. and you know, I love to look at the candy bar section today just to see all the stuff that's out there. I don't know what a peanut butter Snickers tastes like. I don't know what a, you know, there's so many candy bars that have been created in the last 10 and a half years that I haven't eaten candy bars. Every once in a while I like to go there and I, and I laugh and I look at all the shit that's been put out there. Um, a marshmallow, a friggin', friggin' mint, uh, um, uh, three musketeers. Holy crap! What, the, what does that taste like? Whatever. To me, to me, I look at that. That's poison. If I eat that, I know that equals death for me. So just like I won't drink a bottle of iodine, or or I won't drink a bottle of, of this, you know, of, of something that that would abs- you know absolutely kill me. I won't eat certain foods because I'm in fit spiritual condition. And I only, again, am keeping in fit spiritual condition because I do steps 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 via steps 10, 11, and 12 every single day. And so in step 5, we're sharing this inventory. We're going over the exact nature of our wrongs. The word here is exact. So looking at steps 6 and 7, right when somebody begins, I have them do an asset and a defect list. 
and I, and I defined it for them. A, a defect is something that when put into action brings us further away or blocks us from our, our higher power. And an asset is something that when put into action brings us closer to our higher power. And I always give them their first defect, I mean, whether I know them or not. I say, you know what, make the first defect lying. And I've never had anybody, well, maybe one person argued for a little while, but for the most part, I've never had anybody argue with me about that. Because everybody has lied either to themselves or to another person about this disease, about something they've done with the food or whatever got them to our program or, or through the disease, whatever program it is. So by the time we're at step six, they have this list of assets and defects. And guess what? I'm not going to go through all my secrets and all my tricks because I have some potential who haven't been through these steps yet listening. But I will say that I go through that list vigorously with them. And I also go through the assets list vigorously with them. And I tell people, if you've been through steps one through five with me, steps six and seven can be as easy as 20 minutes. Seriously. Because the big book spends three paragraphs on it. And a lot has been made over the years of six and seven, and people flesh it out, and people do all sorts of interpretations of it. I look at the big book as the original text, and I look at the big book as the basic text, of course, of, our, of this society. And it's three paragraphs for a reason. And one of those paragraphs is a prayer. And that, that is only step seven. You know, looking at those defects and then looking at those assets, that seven-step prayer, and you can repeat it with me. Don't hit star one as, as Leah asked you to. But just repeat it with me. It says, my creator, I'm now willing that you step all of me, good and bad. So, you know, good and bad. It says good before the bad. So it's, it's giving your assets to God as well as you're giving your defects to God. It's giving your hopes, desires, and aspirations to God as well as these defects that you're, that you're asking God to please, 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 and that you're ready to please remove them from you. Because by the time I get people through step five, they're pretty much ready to get rid of this shit and live their lives. And with step eight, you know, the big book sends exactly one sentence, and then it matches up eight and nine. Because it says with step eight, we, you already have the list of people you've, har you've harmed. You did it when you made your resentments list and the tears list. And so when we do our fourth step, I'm, I'm running short of time. I'm going to go a little bit over. Um, I was told I can go as long as an hour and a half. I'm not going to bore you with all that. But um, I will say with step eight, I basically go through step four with somebody at step five, and while we're going through that inventory, I say, well, do you think there's an amend there somewhere, either to yourself or to them? I haven't put a little asterisk next to it. And guess what? By the time they're ready for step eight, they go through that, that resentments list and fears list and sex conduct list and et cetera, and they look at all those asterisks, and it's easy peasy, boom, step eight is right there. Um, and then, we, then I, I, what I call 8.5, which is the second part of step eight, become willing to make amends to them all, is when I sit down with them and we make an inaction plan uh, for, getting, for, for going out and making amends, whether, that be, whether those amends be to another person, to another institution, to another principal, or to themselves. Because I always have people put themselves as the first person, and I'm one of those people who do. I know, I'm sorry, I don't follow, I'm not necessarily a follower in that sense, but I, I always have people as number one because we've hurt ourselves as compulsive overeaters and undereaters and bulimics and anorexics more than we've hurt anybody else. I guarantee you that. Um, so with step nine, it's basically going out and carrying out that message. And I'm not really going to jump into step nine so much because it's going out and going through that game plan with your sponsor or, or somebody. I love, you know, one of my favorite things to do is somebody to walk up to me and says, hey, Scott, I have an eighth step list. Can you give me, help me out with the game plan for step nine? Sometimes when I want to get deep with them or they want me to sponsor them, 
you know, instead of just doing like a little a little side job, when they want me to do the whole job, I will look at, I say, well, bring your inventory, bring your six, bring your seven, and let's relook at everything, whether we need to go backwards a little bit. Well, not really backwards, whether we need to go in the book a little bit and sort of reshore up the foundation and rebuild sort of the foundation so you're ready for step nine. But I take people through it, and we go through step step uh, 8.5, and they go carry out step 9. And, of course, I'm there for coaching. That's my job as a sponsor. Because once people are doing step 9, in the end, they're already doing steps 10 and 11, just like I shared. Um, they start living their lives, making amends. Their lives start growing. And then, of course, boom, what happens? Our beautiful promises that's written in every single meeting. And in, in every meeting, of so many meetings, it says, and so many people read, even newcomers, if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. And half, more than 75% of most meetings I've been to can't tell you what phase of the development they're talking about. They can't tell you what they've been halfway through. They don't understand what that means because they haven't read our big book in our fellowship. It's sad. It's true. It really, really is true. The people, A lot of people listening to this call do because they're, they honestly call in every morning and they, go, and they go through the big book at 7 o'clock in the morning or they do it with a big book sponsor or they do it through other meetings or other things. But for the most part in our fellowship across the world, and I've been to meetings in 40 states and nine countries, um, you know, so I, I've traveled a little bit and, I, and I've heard lots of stories and I've been told by lots of people that there's not a lot of big book out there and a lot of people don't understand the phase of our development is step nine and then the halfway through is also step nine. It's written on page 83. It's right after step nine and it brings us into step 10 because these promises are the promises that, that, that tell us that once we do these things and clear away the wreckage of our past and and just by doing these things and living with steps one, two, and three in that first dimension and four, five, six, and seven in that second dimension, doing eight and nine in that third dimension, we start living in that fourth dimension and getting those promises. And then they can start understanding and really living what they've been reading all along with pages 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. Um, you know, again, I, and I'll touch on this quickly. Step 10, we know we carry step four through nine on a daily basis. And I've already told you, we vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. I have my people doing that immediately. I have grand sponsors who I tell if their sponsors have it. Immediately start reading 84 through 88. Just read it. I don't care if you don't understand it. But I always take people through the next paragraph, which is the abstinence promises. You know, um, people call them the 10-step the promises. I've heard people call them the hidden promises. You know what? Screw you. They're the abstinence promises to me. Because these directly affect my eating and, and my way of living. Because it tells me that I'll seldom be interested in, in liquor or I'll seldom be interested in compulsive overeating or these foods. When tempted, I recoil from this from a hot flame. Yeah, I, my first thought is always to look at the candy bar section when I walk through this, these, the pharmacy, but I keep going to the back to pick up my prescriptions or to pick up uh, some Tupperware I need or, or whatever the hell else is, is there that I need to buy and go home with. Um, it tells me that the problem has been removed. In the top of page 85 in the first paragraph toward the bottom, it says, in, you know, we, we have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. Whoa, what kind of promise is that? Does that mean I'm recovered? Can I call myself recovered? Absolutely, yes. Except you've got to also go by the next couple of sentences and the next paragraph. Because the next couple of sentences say we are neither cocky nor are we afraid. Uh, you know, I might sound cocky. I might sound like I know it all. I don't. You know, I really don't because I've been through a horrible relapse and I'll spend a minute talking about this. 
I went through a horrible relapse. You know, after seven and a half years of program, I started discovering the rest of my world because my world got really, really big, really, really fast. And I discovered the world of women. I discovered the world of business. I discovered the money. I discovered all sorts of stuff. And I stopped doing the things that I needed to do on a daily basis to, to work this program and eventually fell into a relapse where I started gaining weight and losing weight and having 30 days here and six months there. And then 9-11 hit. And, of course, lots of us know, you know, who are listening, 9-11 devastated uh, our world besides just New York City. But me being in New York City, I was personally affected by 9-11, not just on watching TV and listening to the radio, but because of people I had in my world and me directly being part of it, um, I was personally affected by If you want to know more, feel free to call me after the call, and I'll share that with you. But 9-11 really threw me into the throes of a relapse because throughout this big book, it talks about faith without works is dead. On page 88, you know, all through Bill's story, all through, you know, the book, it talks about faith without works is dead. But you know what? I, I started thinking, and I said, well, you know what? Works without faith is dead, too. And I had all the works, because I was probably a black belt in this big book, backwards, forwards, and upside down, and I still went into relapse. And then I went all the way up to 508 pounds. And you know what? There's nothing worse, and I will beg you to please never do this, be 508 pounds, six foot one, knowing the big book backwards and forwards and having that information and still compulsively eating. You know, it's like being in the mafia. Once you know too much, you can't get out. It's the same thing with us. I knew way too much, and yet I was still eating because I lost my faith. I, I went to that same silver-haired woman back I met and in, in who had been my, my big book mentor for years, but not my sponsor. I went to her during this relapse, and I asked her to be my sponsor. And between conversations with her and between her faith in God and everything and between the stories she would tell me and, and showing me things in the big book, I eventually got to the point where I was tired and tired of fighting and tired of, of being you know, so just dead inside because I knew what freedom and happiness was. And my life was dissolving around me and before me. All the things I had gotten had disappeared, were disappearing quickly. And on March 6th of 2003, she said, when the heck are you going to get down on your knees, talk to God, and stop eating? And I said, today. So I got down on my knees. I said the third step prayer like I do. And I say it a little bit differently than the book. But, you know, I, you know and it says, even in the book right afterwards, you, know, you can change the words around if you want, as long as the meaning is still there. And I said the third step prayer, and I said, well, what do I do for a food plan? She says, I don't care if you eat an elephant for breakfast, a rhinoceros for lunch, and a hippopotamus for dinner. Three meals, nothing in between, one day at a time. And that got me started. And obviously that's evolved over the years. I'm now maintaining 187, 185 plus, give or take, you know, three or four pound body. And, but over, over this year, I got back my faith and the works were there. So all I needed to do was reshore up that foundation that had been cracked and broken. And I redid, you know, steps four through nine um, through my relapse and, and made amends and to people I harmed during my relapse and during those years of, of me screwing people over and doing all sorts of things, un, unfriendly things in business, unfriendly things with women, unfriendly things with, with my family and just people in my world because of my relapse, because of my greed and desires. And I started living recovered again. Because if we continue on page 85, it says we are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Again, I wasn't in fit spiritual condition. I fell into a relapse. So that's, you know, again, 
food is the last thing to go. If you're if you're resentful, if you're hungry, you know, the hall, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, there's a billion different phrases and expressions out there. But if you have a resentment, if you have fear, if you have anything, do that inventory. I don't care if you call it step 10 or step 11, but, you know, do that daily inventory, do, you know, and, and I'll get into that. But the, ne- the very next sentence here says, it's easy to let up on a spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. That's what I did for my relapse. I rested on my laurels. I stopped working this program. I stopped living 10, 11, and 12. I started focusing on things other than God and pleasing God and, and helping others. I stopped doing these things. It says we're headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. You know, our disease and, and how it works, it says cunning, baffling, and powerful. My sponsor says cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient because I'm a salesman, so I'm a professional salesman, and I know if I can't get through that front door, if I can't get through that back door, I know how to climb through a window, go through the attic, or climb into the basement. My disease does that too. I have a very close friend out in California who says my disease is being held in an undisclosed, you know, a hidden location that if I take credit for anything I've gotten, through this program or through God's grace, it will be returned to me free of charge. And you know what? That's how I live my lives today. Because again, the book says, uh, in the middle of page 85, we're not cured of alcoholism. We're not cured of compulsive overeating, undereating, bulimia, anorexia. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So if my friends see me walk into a meeting and say, my name is Scott, I'm a compulsive overeater, they know I'm in trouble. If I'm Scott, I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater. They know I'm cool. And, but most of the time, I'm walking into meetings and raising my hand saying I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater because that's the truth today. And it's only the truth today because I'm doing stuff like this. I'm sharing. I'm taking an hour of my Sunday morning instead of oh, you know, getting ready for the, for the Giants to lose again or, or the, you know, hopefully the Jets to lose or, or the Eagles to definitely lose, and the Cow- you know, whatever. Instead of watching and preparing for my day, I'm doing this for two hours and listening to your questions in a minute or two. And then I'm also going today to go listen to a fifth step for three hours. I, I'm preparing a sponsee for the very first time to do a beginner's meeting. I'm going to prep her for like 45 minutes. We're going to have lunch, and then we're going to go through her fifth step and do two hours of that today and probably get her all the way through resentments and halfway through fears because I know how many she has, et cetera. And you know what? That's, what? that's what I do. That's how I carry my message, and that's how I carry the message. I don't need to go any further because with step 12, Having, it's, again, it's three parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, not as a result of meetings, not as a result of, of, of literature, not as a result of anything. It's, again, those are tools. It's as a result of these steps. So the meetings get us to the steps, and the, and the literature, of course, gives us the steps, and the sponsors bring us the steps. But for the most part, the steps is what creates that, that, that spiritual experience, that spiritual awakening. And then it says, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. So we tried to carry. That's the only way I use tried because, you know, alcoholics, compulsive overeaters, we're a bunch of lying people. And we're just a bunch of people who are dishonest with ourselves, with others. We don't even know when we're lying. So it's just the challenge of, um, of um, just being in our world. And I'm uh, sorry, somebody texted me and I thought it might be Leah telling me to shut up, but I'll, I will shut up in, in less than a minute, Leah, I promise. Um, you know, basically, this, the, the 12th step, as a result of carrying these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. People in my world know I do not use the word try. I was not a fan of the movie Empire Strikes Back, except for Yoda, because Yoda turns around and says, I'm not going to imitate him this morning because I have a bad voice this morning. I'm already talking for an hour. He, he says, try, try not, do, or do not. And I say, you know, replace the word try with do. 
And the big book uses the word try, and that's the only time I use the word try because I'm dealing with addicts. And, of course, addicts are liars. That's what we do. That's what, we're professional liars. That's what we do. And, and, to pract- and again, it just says this message. We tried to carry this message. It's the steps. You know, it's another way of saying the steps. And to practice these principles, the steps. It's, it's him saying, it's him reinforcing the steps three different times. Let's read it again. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to our alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. And so, you know, it's, it's practicing these principles. It's not just practicing these principles in a meeting and, and on the phone. It's practicing these principles in a supermarket, in the car, while I'm driving, on the train when somebody's screaming about begging for something and I want to listen to Led Zeppelin in my headphones and I can't because somebody's screaming poetry on a train looking for donations. You know, it's carrying and, and living this message when I'm, you know, doing this or doing that with my family and with all the, the you know, just the people in my world that push my buttons. And I've learned it's not up to me. It's not up to me to get them to stop pushing my buttons. It's up to me to remove the buttons. And guess what removes the buttons, people? The steps. Step four, step five shows me all those buttons. Step six and step seven gives me the idea and the ability to ask God to remove them. And all of a sudden, when I start living 10, 11, and 12, I know when I'm lying. Because when I'm lying to you, I can lie. I'm unfortunately skilled at this. I can lie to somebody directly to their face without blinking. And it's an unfortunate skill that I have, but it is one, and I do need to share it honestly. But I say I can, I can lie right to your face, and, but I know, I know in my heart, I see the word lying in big, bold, neon letters behind you because I know when I'm lying. You know, I know the truth now. And when I'm in fit spiritual condition, I know when I'm lying. I know when I'm cheating. I know when I'm being dishonest. I know when I'm selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. So when I called this, this session, when Leah asked me, what do you want to call this session? I say, carry this message. Please, people, please use this big book. Call me. My number is 718-440-4776. Leah has it. She will repeat it multiple times. I will repeat it again. 718-440-4776. And call me. Ask me questions. I love questions. I love challenges. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing your questions right now. And with that, I'm going to shut up and say thank you so much for this opportunity. I can't wait to hear your questions and your comments. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning, speaking about the journey through the steps and carrying the message of recovery. We appreciate your time and energy on the line with us this morning. And again, Scott's contact information that number is 718-440-4776 now let's open the floor for any questions you might have uh, for scott this is yes susan one minute i heard something somebody before i didn't catch the name mary 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 go ahead and then susan good morning uh thanks very much mary compulsive overeater um, I just wanted to ask about um, when I heard you mention that you sponsor women, I've often heard it suggested that men wor- work with men and women work with women for obvious, you know. Um, so I just wondered if you would comment on that. Thank you. Very happily. Thank you so much for the question. Um, here, here's the thing. I sponsor right now my arsenal of sponsees. I have nine or ten people who I directly work with. 
Um, eight of seven of well, one, two, uh, five of those people have been through step nine and are living 10, 11, and 12. So I basically coach them as they sponsor others and coach them in their lives with 10, 11, and 12. Um, some of them call me once a week, twice a week, et cetera. And then I sponsor other people directly through the steps. So out of those people, eight of those are women and one of those is a man. And again, in Overeaters Anonymous, outside of New York City, Chicago, you know, San Francisco, uh, major, major cities, our program is 91% women. And I've learned just over the years, how, because of my early experience in program, how to treat women and how to understand women, how to respect a woman. And I've also learned to separate the two. And I've learned that I can sponsor somebody half my age, you know, totally my type, if I'm to have a type, which I don't really. Um, but the bottom line is, is that I don't look at this person as a woman. I look at this person as a compulsive overeater who wants to become a recovered compulsive overeater and do these steps. And when I'm sitting with them, I shift into that brain and I go through that. I don't think about them in that way. I don't think about any woman in OA in that way unless we've built a relationship and I don't go to the same meetings with them. I, I, I can tell you in 22 and a half years of, of being in program, I've dated uh, in program directly to people. And one person lives uh, completely across the country in California, and the other person lives in Maryland and would drive up to New York once or twice a week, and she would go to one meeting in New York, which I never went to, and she would go to most of her meetings down in, in Maryland where she lived. So, and I, you know, again, at conventions, I've been single, and other people have been single, and things happen, but for the most part, I separate the two, and I hang my hat on the fact that I can walk into a meeting and somebody says, that's Scott, he's not somebody who's there to, to leer at women. He's not some alcoholic who's walking into our meetings and there to scare at pretty women. He's here because he wants to carry this message. And that's what I hang my hat on, and that's why I can sponsor women who, who are twice my age, half my age, or whatever. So that's my reasoning and my, my answer. Every you know, Ask another man or another woman. I tell my female sponsees, don't go to a man unless I talk to them first because I want to talk to that guy and I want to make sure what that guy's intentions are because I know how to read people and I know how to work with people. And if somebody comes up to one of my attractive sponsees and says, I want what you have, which people do because when my sponsees qualify, they sound like me and they sound like this big, well, not me, but they sound like this big book. And so that's basically the answer to the question is, you know, when my female sponsees have a male sponsee, I talk to that man first. They, they always say, well, I want you to call my sponsor Scott first and talk to him. And I go meet with that guy, not just on the phone. I go meet with him in person. And we chit-chat and we understand. And I, you know, I read people. I, I read people for a living. I understand how to read people. And I understand what some of these true intentions are. And then I, I ask him the same question as you asked me. Why are you hunting for an attractive female sponsee, well, sponsor? You know, what is it that she has that, that some guy or this guy, I can give you the phone number of seven guys who could sponsor you. And I, I really push and really, really, really push and uncomfortably push sometimes. But that's what I do and I protect the women in my OA world and in my regular life. So thank you. That's my answer. Thanks, Mary, for the question. Susan, you're next. Thank you both so much. Scott, I've heard you qualify before, but it was wonderful to hear the extended remix version. Um, when you shared about uh, your relapse and after 9-11, I too am a New Yorker, and um, you shared about, you know, having all the, the knowledge in the big book and finding that silver-haired lady again, and uh, but you needed to refine your faith. And my favorite part of program is hearing about people finding or refinding faith. Could you expand on that a little? And I apologize for the noise. I'm going to mute right now. 
Thank you so much, Susan. That's, that's actually, I was waiting for that question. I'm so excited that you asked that question because I didn't want to, you know, bring it into the qualification because I was already going what I felt like late. Um, but basically the idea was the dog God principle. That's what I call it. I'll say it real quick. Uh, if, I told, if I screamed right now, what dog do you think of? There's 200 plus people on this phone, hopefully, or not, whatever. And every single person might come up with a different answer because there's that many breeds of dogs. You know what? That's how many different higher powers we have in our program. Every single person has their own higher power. Then the other dog god expression, what I say and what my sponsor said to me was the silver-haired lady who I then took, you know, who I knew for 12, 13 years at that point and, and asked her to help me get out of this relapse and find God again and get me through this, these steps that I know so well in this book that I know so well. She gave me the other dog god principle. And the other dog god principle is I, I have a dog. And when I leave my house, my dog gives me puppy eyes, and I kiss, and I love, and I, and I rub her, and I play with her, and I kiss her, and I have to go to work. So I leave house, and I go to work. And I come home, and guess who's the first thing to greet me besides my wife, my friends? It's that dog. Hi, Daddy. Daddy, you're home. It's so great. It's so great to see you. Can you take me out so I can pee? Daddy, Daddy can you feed me? Can, can we hang out? Can we do this? Can we do that? Can I sit on your lap? So then imagine God being... What? And then... What? Let me, let me finish. Let me finish. We'll take them now. Oh, somebody, somebody's live. Somebody's Aren't live. They? You have to hit mute. Yep, you have to hit mute, please. Um, here's the thing. Then if you flip it around and you make yourself the dog and God the human, God goes to work every morning and closes that door. You give your puppy eyes to God every morning, and God goes to work and closes. You know, God. You know, the human God goes to work and closes that door. And then God comes home at five, five, six, seven o'clock, and then you're there to greet God at the end of the day. You don't know what God did out there. My dog doesn't know what I'm doing out there. My dog is just hanging around waiting for me to come home. So, you know, and doing what he needs to do or she needs to do to keep their lives or in his, his life, whatever. So I don't know what God's doing out there when, when God is out there. And when God comes home, I, I, I'm so happy to see God at the end of the day. Because I talk to God at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, and when I talk to God during the day, it's always praying for others because I've learned through this book that never to pray for myself. So the sponsor that, you know, the silver-haired lady who qualified last Sunday, so if you go and you listen to her qualification last Sunday, um, you'll hear a lot about God. Um, it's, it's the idea of, of just something greater than me, and she helped me restore my, my faith that I had that I had lost. So thank, thank you for the question. Thank you, Susan. Who's next with a question? Sally, Sally in South Jersey. Go ahead, Sally. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, a vision for you. Scott, thank you for your share. My question to you is, in the process of your losing all that weight, the 300 pounds plus, um, I wondered how much, um, if you could speak to the um, the scale and specifically to taking off your armor, because for me, taking off um, 75 pounds in the last year of uh, becoming recovered, uh, there were some very painful, frightening moments when I would simply lose three to five pounds and um, meltdown, panic, because I was removing my armor, because the fat was my armor. I wondered if that was a component for you that you were aware of um, that perhaps you might speak to that. Thank you. I will. Thank you so much for that question. Here's the thing. 
when I first lost the weight, I was 460 pounds coming into OA and then got down to a 235-pound body at the age of 23, 24. That was perfect for me. And my body size, my body type, my age, it was perfect for me. And I lived it, and I released that armor. And the women and men of Overeaters Anonymous helped me through that and showed me and understood that, yeah, I put on all that armor to keep people away from it. But guess what? When I did that, you know, in my early recovery, I already experienced what the world of women was like, what, what happens, what, you know, when a woman takes a look at me. I know when a woman's checking me out now. I know when a gay man, and I live in a city where there's a lot of gay men and, you know, just whatever. I know when a person's checking me out. And I'm flattered either way because, I, you know, I don't think I'm attractive, and that's just my own personal bullshit. And I know that's my personal bullshit. So, you know, when somebody finds me attractive, I'm, you know, hey, thanks. You know, it is what it is, but the thing is that that armor was released originally. So when that armor was on me again, it wasn't armor. It was me just binging my head off because that's all I knew how to do, and that's all I went back to. So when, when I got my faith back, I just, the, the weight just melted away because I was married at that point. I was married, and then I actually met my second wife, and there's an old saying, you know, when you meet a second wife, uh, when you meet two people, when you're in love with two people, go with the second because if you were really in love with the first, there wouldn't be a second. So I fell in love with, with another woman and, and you know, was, again, after being separated, was divorced from my first wife and then married my second wife. So I really was in relationships and really my armor and my body was had already been in shape. Um, and then eventually I got into mixed martial arts and now I have multiple black belts and I have lots of other things that help keep me in physical condition. But at the same time, um, it's not about my armor anymore. It's not about being, I'm in the smallest body I've ever been in. I'm in 187 pounds. I'm six foot one. I'm perfect for my BMI. But at the same time, you know, I'm in the smallest body I've ever been in. Yeah, my waist size is the exact same waist size when I was 10 years old. I mean, how fucked up is that? Sorry for the language. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's just what it is. So the armor had been released early in my recovery, and I been through that and, and held hands through that with therapy, with, with things outside of the program. Because the big book has the answer to every question, but sometimes that answer is that you need to look elsewhere. And for me, therapy was elsewhere, and I learned how to talk to women and how to appreciate women and how to understand the idea of, of another human being holding my hands without wanting to jump all over them in, in a serenity prayer and this and that through OA, but then I, I talked to a therapist about, you know, my body and releasing the weight and, and getting rid of that armor and, and being close with people and understanding that. So, again, thank you for the question. Hi, yes, this thank is you, Lori Sally. from New Jersey. Go ahead, Lori. Question. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for speaking today. Um, I called in a little bit late, and I'm sorry I did, so I'm going to have to listen from the beginning because you just said a lot of wonderful things. But my question is, like, I've just recently did my third, I mean, yeah, my steps, worked, you know, with the sponsor one-on-one. And, you know, I have a list of my defects, but you mentioned a list of assets, and, like, we never did that. And I just wanted to know, like, when that was supposed to be done and when and how I could do that now, because I think it's probably an important thing to have the asset list, you know. Okay, so here's the thing. Me. I will. I will write now. I don't mean to cut you off, but I just you know for time purposes, I get the question. I understand it. If you go to page 262 of the big book, and in the, the third edition, it's 292, they're the original six steps of the big book. And the moral, there are six steps. They were complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, and continued work with other alcoholics. Without going into a litany, because I can talk about this for an hour, 
But the moral inventory they did back in the day, and we learn it in Bill's story on page 13 when he talks about becoming you know, aware of all the things keeping him from God, that moral inventory they did was a list of defects and assets, just like I explained in via step six. Um, I was told to, you know, and again, I can, I was sponsored by somebody else besides, you know, the silver-haired woman who helped me later on and besides the sponsor I had before and with, with the silver woman, you know, silver-haired woman coaching me as, through the big book, blah, 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 along with my sponsor and this and that, I was taught how to, you know, just make a list of assets and defects and the assets were the most important thing on that page and I pressure people to please put your assets down, put your hopes, dreams, aspirations, everything down because God wants to hear those too and God needs to hear those too. And that's just what I was told to do because when we read the seven-step prayer, again, it says, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in way of my usefulness to you and of my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. However, it mentions the good and the bad. So the people who took me through the steps, you know, through via the, the steps, the way these six steps were laid out, that's what they did back in the day, a defect and assets list, and then the moral inventory, the, the, the confession was going through that, the restitution was basically, you know, you see in Bill's story on page 13, he says, I made a list of people whom I harmed and whom I felt resentment. So he did the resentments list when he did the harms list. So it was sort of mixed around back in the day. And then when they made the book, they, needed, they knew that they, this was going to a bunch of sick alcoholics that they needed to flesh it out, and they made it into 12 steps. But when you look at step six and seven, you look at the bottom of page page 75, and then the top of the you know, top in the middle of page 76, and it's three paragraphs. I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to? Sorry, for, I'm sorry for the language. I'm sorry, Leah. I promise, I'm really sorry. Um, it's just, what, what am I supposed to do with that? So I was taught what to do with that. And again, I'm not going to go into huge detail about what I do with that because again, I have people listening that might go that are definitely going through those steps, and I don't want to give away the magic that I take them through and, and the stuff that they feel afterwards and the stuff that, you know, the little the little stuff I have in my back pocket that I've learned how to do to change people's lives and to push the right buttons. But assets are definitely the major part of that list. It's not the defects, it's the assets. I guarantee you if you make a list of assets and give them to God, you'll start changing if you have the right sponsor or call me and I'll give you direct instructions on how to do it. Thank you very much. Hello, can I speak? Thank you, Lori. Yes, your name, please. Hi. My name is Phil. I'm calling from New York City. Hey, Phil, go ahead. All right. Hey, Scott. Great to hear you. And I just wanted to say um, the stuff that you're laying down is so important. It's about the 12 steps because it's like a 12-step program. A lot of people miss out on that. But what I want to ask you about is uh, the concept of being male in a program that is predominantly women. Um, because I know there's a lot of guys out there that are probably listening to this and probably thinking, like, I would like to get involved with the program of action, but I feel intimidated because there's so many women here or things along those lines. And uh, I just wanted to say, what, what can you do to encourage a guy that's uh, listening that might be very curious about this program wants to get involved but feels like, you know, oh, it's not so manly to have this disease because, you know, you know there's more women here or as opposed to alcoholism, which is, you know, the, there was mostly men in the beginning, and then it, it. it's filtered down. All right. Got it. Got it, Phil. Thank you. And hey, Phil. Good. Got it. Thank you for calling in. He's a friend of mine. Um, Phil was actually the guy who I was quoting with Step 11, please God, please God, please God. Um, and just wanted to give you kudos because you deserve it. Thank you so much for giving me that tool. Now I have that in my back pocket to share with somebody. Um, 
Yeah, we're in a program that's 90 nationally, worldwide. Again, I know World Service stuff. I track World Service stuff. I've been, I've been a representative at World Service for New York City. Um, we're in a fellowship of 91% women. And, of course, living in New York City, it's about 75% women because there's a lot of just men and just, just you know, more just people who are, who are just understanding and, and, and there's also a large gay population, et cetera. Um, same thing with other with other large communities like San Francisco, Cal, you know, Los Angeles, Chicago, Texas, you know, Dallas, et cetera. You know, major major towns. The thing is, I say the same thing to men as I say to women. Go out and try some controlled eating. You know, go out and try some some controlled doing. And if you know what, if you don't feel comfortable sitting in a room with five women because in that in your town there's five, you know, there's, there's only one meeting and there's five women who are all fat and they're all sitting there trying to get their abstinence then call into a vision for you every morning at 7 o'clock and you'll hear some men and women. Then call into Sunday night. Guess what? Sunday night there's a men's meeting on the phone at, at 8.30. My friend Howard is, is the dude. He's the, he's the dude who, who hooks people up to speak at that meeting. I spoke at that meeting recently. I speak at that meeting about every six months or so. There's men's meetings in major towns, but there's, but there's men who are suffering from our disease um, and even suffering in other fellowships who are afraid of coming into our fellowship. And if you're listening to this, Guys, just get to it. Do it. Um, if you're in another fellowship, use these same 12 steps. Take away the word alcohol and replace it with food. Open up your 12 and 12. Replace the word alcohol, alcoholic. Replace it with food. And if it's sex, that's your issue. Replace it with sex. If it's debting, that's your issue. Replace it with debting. Whatever it is. I sponsor people who are in AA. I have people, I, I have one person who is not part of my sponsorship family, which I really didn't talk about because I have sponsees and grand sponsees. I alluded to it, but don't really, didn't really talk about it directly. But I, I have people in my sponsorship family, and then I have other people who I work with who are in other fellowships who never even set foot into an OA meeting, but know of me because of my big book knowledge and understanding, and it's just been referred to me. Be, um, and I sponsor them through the big book. And I don't care if they're an alcoholic, debtor, sex addict, a drug addict, whatever it is. Whatever it is. So if you're male, female, I don't care what your gender is, transgender, bisexual, you know, whatever it is, who cares? If you're suffering from this disease, the 12 steps will get you out of it. And that's my same message I give to men and give to women. So guys, if you're listening and you haven't been to a meeting because you're afraid of women, get to that meeting and be the man at the meeting. Those women need to hear your story too, and they will help you. I guarantee you that because they helped me. These women carried me in my recovery. And in my meetings in the beginning were 95, 98% women and one guy. That one guy was my sponsor for a little while, but then I was sponsored by a woman through the steps. And then women, my whole entire sponsorship, it's been women. So thank you again, Phil, for the question. Thank you, Phil. Next up, our one to unmute. Uh, come on, people. This is Hi, I'm, 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 I, my name is Linda. I'm uh, calling about a question around uh, food behaviors. Hi, I Linda. Have, go ahead. I have been um, trying trying to get abstinent, and um, you know my food is in order and all that during the day, and then there's food behaviors, TV um, specifically but I'd like to hear some more about, you know, letting go of all that. Okay. Thank you, Linda, for the, for the question. What I do, and again, I don't talk a lot about food, which is funny because, you know, again, I've lost 
I, I've, I've released hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So, yeah, I'm a food expert. Yeah, I'm a mixed martial arts expert. Yeah, I, I do a lot of different things that, that you know, I understand the physical body and the physical nature and what I need to do to, to lose weight. But it's not about the it's not about the food. It's about why we compulsively overeat and and the stuff behind it. So here, but here's the thing: we, it is about the food in the beginning and understanding the disease and getting out of it. The challenge, what I say to people, is give me your list. And what I say to newcomers, and just somebody I met with yesterday was a potential sponsee who I gave a few assignments to, and all right, she calls me, she calls me, she doesn't, she doesn't. If I hook her up with a sponsee of mine, whatever. In any case, I said, you know, make a list of your red light, green, red light and yellow light foods and food, food issues, you know, uh, uh, food behaviors. So a list of red lights. I know a yellow light for me, I'm just going to use, you know, a large restaurant change. A yellow light food, a yellow light behavior for me is Applebee's. It's yellow light because, you know what, there's lots of stuff in Applebee's I can have that is abstinent, and there's lots of stuff that I have that's not abstinent, but it's okay for me to be there, but it's a yellow light because I need to be careful because there's lots of stuff I can binge on if I, if I fell out of fit spiritual condition. A red light food would be, um, Pizzeria Uno's, 95% of that menu is not abstinent for me, and I there is no way, shape, or form I have no business being in there, except I I was in town last year with some with some professional folks in town that I was entertaining, and they wanted to go to Uno's. I said, you're in New York City, the pizza capital of the universe. We have the best water in the world. You have the best pizza in the world. You want to go to Uno's? And they said, yeah, we love Uno's. And this, and this, and this. I'm like, all right, well, you're paying. You're, you're, you're my client, so let's go. And I took them, and you know what? I found a salad with, with chicken on it and, and, and this and that and whatever dressing I used, and I was absolutely eating while they ate cal- you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of calories and alcohol and all sorts of stuff that I had my Diet Coke and sat there with. And you know what? It is what it is. But I have people make a list of red light and yellow light foods and food behaviors and, and understanding what those foods and food behaviors are. We create an abstinence out of that. It's a single conversation or a single email that we go back and forth on and then we chat about, and then that's it. Um, if people need to turn off the food, all right, fine. For a month, two months, three months, if you're brand new, maybe six months, eight months, turn over your food, and then, then you know what? You already know how to eat. You know, it's just two, here's the thing. We're, you know, there's a lot of older folks in the line been around for a long time. This is 2013, people. There's a, everybody, most people coming into OA today know every single diet in the world because it's all out there on the Internet. So they know how to eat. So eating, getting to the issues and why they're compulsively overeating is the challenge. It's not, it's not creating a food plan in an abstinence. So, you know, dealing with the red light and yellow light, this and that. And then somebody said, what about green light? I'm like, well, green light is everything else. I mean, come on. Look, seriously, you're going to put down the rest of the food world? It's, we, we only care about the red light and the yellow light stuff. Um, and that's basically how I create and how I sit with sponsees, um, uh, people who are looking to make changes in their world. And that's all we do, you know. And, that's, and again, I know a lot about physicality. I know a lot about the, 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 the medical science of it. I know about calories in, calories out, diets and, and medical blood disorders and stuff and, and, you know, all sorts of stuff that can help, that can stop us from losing weight and gaining weight and all sorts of different things. I only use those cards when, people, when I'm sponsoring people and they, and they need it. Um, I don't use those cards regularly, and I don't have regular food discussions with people because I, when people are telling me they're having issues with food, I immediately say, what else is going on? So thank you for the question. Yes, thank you, Linda. Anyone else this morning with a question for Scott? Good morning. I have a question. This is Mary Lee in California. Go ahead. Um, prayer and meditation. 
where do you fit that in? Oh, hey, Mary Lee. Oh, awesome question. Um, my sponsor has a thing. You know, she's a very religious woman. I'm not a religious man. But I have a thing, and her thing to me, because she's been in program for 40 years, and so she understands, you know, everybody needs to have a separate religion, just like Bill, who was a very Christian man and believed in Jesus Christ, but knew that the fellowship needed to not have a figurehead as a religion. It, it needed to be all-encompassing. All she said to do, all she said to me is to say, Scott, if you, if you only need to wake up in the morning and say, good morning, God, then that's your morning prayer. But, however, my prayer and meditation has evolved um, I'll just give you a few seconds on it. Um, I definitely wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is I get on my knees. I don't care if I leave my slippers under the bed, or whatever, my big book under the bed, whatever I need to do to get on my knees in the morning. I get on my knees and immediately kneel before something that's greater than me because, yeah, I don't care if I come from a Jewish religion. I don't care if I come from a religion that, that, that wanted to kill me when I, was, when I was a teenager. It's whatever it is. But today, kneeling, it puts me in that position where I'm, I'm not in power, that something else is in power to me. And I pray... And when I pray, I never mention Scott in those prayers. I mention everybody else. The only time I ever mention Scott is because of my usefulness. On my way to Brooklyn yesterday, I mentioned Scott, you know, please help me with this and this and this so I can help my new sponsee get through the Bill's story and, and find the right pages and stops and talks and this and that. Meditation, I'm a mixed martial art person. I'm a kung fu person. Um, I'm also a, a um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu person, and I've learned um, meditation via Kung Fu, that Bruce Lee and, 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 you know, just all sorts of people along Ip Man and all sorts of people along that way used. Um, so I do a, an open-eye meditation, which I can share more about if you called me uh, or when you call me, hopefully. Um, and I can share more about it, but it's an open-eye meditation that can last five minutes. It can last an hour. But I completely shut down every single part of my body to be open. And, and then I finish it with a lot of different moves and, and different things that I do, um, which recently changed because I had a bunch of broken ribs that, from a stupid fall. But at the same time, it still didn't change my meditation because my meditation is about listening. And I've, I also, as much as I love to talk, and you know I love to talk because I'm talking, um, I know how to listen and I know how to shut up. So I know how to shut up and I know how to feel and, and get those impulses. And, and knowing in the big book on page 85, and it talks about that, that internal sixth sense that we receive I understand what God's voice is and what Scott's voice is. So thank you for the question. Thank you, Mary Lee. Anyone else Debbie? this morning? Debbie, go ahead. This is Debbie. Yeah, this is Debbie, recovered in Montana. Thank you for your share. Um, I was curious, just, you know, a ballpark figure, how long you give people to do their four-step inventory? Oh, p great question. Um I thank you so much for the question. It's a good one. I, I, what I do is, here's the thing. All right, we have a list of, uh, what I do is I, I give out the, the inventory I get, I got from my sponsor, which again, from those two alcoholics I, I talked about that you can ask me about after the call. But what I do is I give out that inventory. It's a four-page inventory. It's resentments, it's fears, it's sex harms, and it's other harms. And I tell people, I give people a minimum number of what to do in that inventory. I want 50 actions a day on that inventory. And I have people, again, doing it vertically because there's instructions on that one. On every single page, there's an instruction on it. It says, do column one. Do not ignore. It says, ignore columns two, three, and four until you're finished with column one. So I have them go down the line, down the line. So I want six. I start with 60, depending on what they do. I have some PhD. I actually have two PhD students, which is funny because I've, I've never even been to high school. Um, I'm, I'm a GED student, whatever, and I, all my smarts are from the business world and what I've learned in OA. But 
anyway, the thing is, is that I, I give people 60 actions a day, and then I make them commit to those 60 actions, and if somebody is an overachiever and starts doing 90, I say, guess what? Your number is now 80 actions a day. And when it comes to all the check marks in the middle and all the, the you know, does it affect my this, does it affect my that, does it affect all, all, the, different, all the different issues, um, it, it becomes easy because it's a bunch of check marks. So if somebody even emailed me recently, Scott, I'm doing my, my fears of mentoring now, um, I'm finding, you know, 50 is easy, should I do more? And I said, 50 is the minimum number. Feel free to do 200 actions a day. The, the trick is getting them through as much as possible. So if somebody says, I did 55 actions, I say, guess what, tomorrow you owe me 65. And if somebody says, I did 65 actions today, I say, guess what, tomorrow you owe me 60. Because it's the same 60. They wanted to, you know what I mean? I push them through. People typically take about three weeks or so, four weeks or so to get through it, depending on their life. I have two PhD students. So they're working and they're going to school and they're lecturing and they're doing all sorts of other stuff all day long. So they, one of them, you know, is already, you know, I'm picking up already sort of done and we're just going through the big book. Um, and so four will be sort of easy because she already has it, but the other one is doing 50 actions a day. And some people I start on 40, some people I start on 80 because they have the ability to do 80 actions a day. So that's basically my, my tool for that. So thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Anyone else? Hi, this is Erin from New York City. Hi, Erin. Go ahead. Hi, thanks, Scott, so much for the qualification. Um, it's so fantastic to hear you, of course. You said something the other day about sponsorship that was a um, light bulb for me, and uh, I just wanted to for you to talk a little bit about um, what you kind of consider the best time to sponsor people and what to do if somebody comes up to you in a meeting um, in the beginnings in your first three steps maybe and asks you to be their sponsor, which should you probably do? Oh, thank you, Aaron, so much for the call. Um, um, okay, I, I'm a believer in sponsoring after, you, after you're halfway through or sort of into step nine. Um, I'm a believer in having, and I start people on that, and when I start that conversation when people are starting their step nine. And cause they're, again, in my world, they're, they're already living 10 and 11, so we start having the step 12 discussion as they're beginning their step nine, and we start having that sponsorship discussion. So in my world, I look at it as there's a 12,000-foot mountain. You're a newcomer, right, or you're a middle-comer, or you're a long-timer who needs to go through these steps and hasn't been over the mountain yet. There's a 12,000-foot mountain in front of you. Why are you going to hire somebody who's only gone 4,000, 5,000 feet and maybe maybe, you know, we'll go some more and once they figure it out and bring you along. I say, and what a lot of people in my world say, and when I say my world, I mean people who, who I sponsor, who, you know, who they sponsor, and then friends who, who talk like me and sound like me, um, they understand the idea of, you know what, it, it, you can't carry something you haven't got. You know, page 164 says it clearly. You can't transmit something you haven't got. So I say, unless you're, my choice my recommendation would strongly be don't sponsor until you're through your, until you're at least beginning your step nine. And if there's a 12,000-foot mountain in front of you, don't hire somebody who's only gone four or 5,000 feet. You want to hire somebody who's gone all 12,000 feet and is living on the other side. So when someone walks up to me in a meeting, I don't immediately say yes to anything. I always say, call me. And, or call me, or let's go to lunch, or let's go you know, here or there, and let's have a conversation about it. Because not everybody's ready for this. People think they might be ready. Not everybody's ready. And once they really start talking and they see that I'm all about the solution and they might all about the, about the problem or want to know the quick fix for weight loss or this or that, and that's not what they're going to get from me or my sponsees or my grand sponsees, you know, or my sponsor. 
you know, for that matter. So, I mean, that's that's basically how we roll in my world. Thank you, Aaron, for the question. Any other questions on the line for Scott? Hi, I have a question. Go, go ahead. Hi, Scott. This is Kotea. Very nice to hear your voice and your story. Um, I have a question regarding making amends to yourself. Um, could you elaborate a little bit about that? Absolutely. Thank you for your question. Um, I, I always have people put themselves. You. I always have people put themselves as the first person on men's list, because a lot of the amends that I needed, I know I needed to make, and I know a lot of my sponsees need, needed to make was to themselves. And here's the thing: like if I harmed, if if I did this or did that or or robbed or stole, and that business has been closed for, for this. Well, I mean, stealing is a different story because money payback. You know, there's all sorts of other tools I use for money payback when there's the business is closed or the person's gone or you can't find somebody. But for for a lot of other reasons. People have said things to other people or did things to other people that really, in the in the end, really didn't harm the other person, but really harmed themselves. And what it ends up being is a behavioral change. And I say, you know what? You've harmed yourself because you're selfish and you act selfishly. So here's the, here's the amend that, that we need to make. Because amend means to change. Amend means to make a change, not to say, I'm sorry. It's about making a change. So it's about behavioral changes within ourselves. Just stop being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, inconsiderate, you know, resentful and fearful, and, and all that stuff. And and what I do is I go through, you know, each each um, each person with my sponsee, and we'll be like, well, you know, did you really harm that person, or were you really did you really harm yourself because of the actions that you did with that person? And we have a real conversation about it. And if it's them, I have them put me next to it. Um, not not Scott, but their, but their name, et cetera, et cetera. Again, that, that's more tools that some of my sponsees haven't heard yet, so I don't really want to give everything away. But for the most part, that's that's what we that's what we talk about. Thank you for the question. And anyone else with a question for Scott before we wrap up this morning? This is Amy. Amy, go ahead with the question. Good morning. Thank you so much, Scott, for your lead. Really, really appreciate it. Um, you know, you're part of your story where you had the relapse, and, um, you know, your your comments about how we all know that it's a, the bite is the last thing at the end, you know, of relapse warning signs that, you know, failed to be paid attention to, if you will. Could you elaborate on that? I mean, you mentioned briefly what had happened, but could you elaborate to help us as sponsors to um, – or, you know, as people in program to pay attention to what those signs would be and, and to help our sponsees as well? I'm a professional, so I know how to, you know, whatever I am. But but it is a good question because the thing is, with, with I'm, I'm just trying to think of the best way to answer that. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Can can you just can we, can we just like repeat the question in just sort of a short short version? Oh, okay. So getting out of uh, the sure. relapse and helping. Oh, that, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. The first thought. Um, I was thinking of my okay. my my saying that I always use. I got it. I'm sorry. The, the here's the thing. Everybody has a first thought, and that that first thought again something taught to me by the silverhead woman taught to us by by the two alcoholics on the tapes, and and you know it's the first thought that gets us in trouble. 
so the first thought is is you know we we had we developed these first thoughts you know the, these things when we're children and and all these things so i know my first thought will always be food my my instinct for for anything will always be to protect myself to to hide myself to eat so the instinct to everything will always be to run to food um so it's the second thought is the one that... Re- so I always share in meetings, it's the first thought we're not responsible for because that first thought happens whether we like it or not. I'm a compulsive overeater in the end. Yeah, I might be recovered today, but I haven't always been recovered. So the thing is, I, I share with my people and I share with, with anybody who will listen that the first thought is not our fault. It's the second thought is our fault in the, se- in the third thought. So we're not responsible for the first thought, but we are responsible for every thought we give that. So when that immediate thought comes up, that's when we start needing to live that step 10, which is why I start throwing step 10 at my people immediately. Because, you know, look for, look for this and this and this and this and this to happen. Look for where, where we were selfish, where we're this and where that, and, and where we're, you know, lured in by, by the, the sexiness of some food or, or some, you know, uh, romanticized by the idea of something that, that will hurt us eventually. Um, and the idea of sharing it with another person, because the big book says, you know, when these things happen, and they will, we immediately, we, we, we take care of any amends that, that need to be made. We share them with someone at once. You know, we take care of any amends that need to be made. We clean it up, and then we immediately turn our thoughts to someone we can be of service to. So in my mind, that means getting out of my head, because if I'm having that first and second and third thought, I'm in the six inches between my ears. So... What I tell people is that's six inches. I might be a mixed martial artist and can really, really hurt somebody if I, if I put my mind to it. Unfortunately, I have that skill. Or fortunately, it's actually helped me in my life a little bit. But um, for the most part, my sponsor tells me, I don't care what you know and what damage you can do, Scott. The most dangerous part of your body is the six inches between your ears. So I share that with people and I tell my, my sponsees or anybody who will listen to me that getting out of your head and into another head is, is the best way to handle our issues. My very favorite quote in the big book is, when in doubt, work with another compulsive overeater, work with another alcoholic, will save the day. And that's on page 15. So it, it's, just, it's just that. It's getting out of that first thought, getting into the idea of, all right, when this happens and that happens, you're starting rushing and all of a sudden all sorts of crazy things are going on in your head. You're angry, you're resentful, you're sad, you're fearful. Share it with your sponsor. Share it with, with anybody who will listen, but then shut up and start calling other people. Now, when people say make three phone calls a day, I say bullshit. You make three connections a day because guess what? This is 2013. Everybody has a cell phone and everybody has voicemail. So it might take 17, 25 calls just to talk to three people. And you know what? You've got to make those 17, 25, 15, 12, whatever amount of calls you're going to make to talk to those three people. And when you do, do not talk about yourself. Get into that other person's head and see how their day is going, what's going on in their world, what's happening in their life, no matter how many times they flip it around on you. So, and by getting out of their head, by getting out of your head, you're getting into theirs, and you get away from that six inches between your ears, and all of a sudden, this too shall pass comes into play, and, it, and the desire and all that just dissolves. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Hi. Are you allowed to ask a second question if you asked a question? Go right ahead. Thanks. This is Lori again. I have a question. You say um, being recovered. So before you had your relapse, you were recovered, and then you relapsed. So my my question is, like, isn't it really like we're in, like, remission 
versus relapse, I mean, versus recovered. Yes. I got it. Yeah. Um, we are in remission. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw us right back into our big books. We're going to open up again on page 85. And, you know, it says right in the, middle, right in the beginning of the first paragraph, we're, we've not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. So, again, that's part of being recovered. But then when you look at the next paragraph, it says that it is easy to let up on our spiritual program of action when restaurant laurels we're headed for trouble, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Yes, I will be a compulsive overeater till the day I die. I understand that. I, or an addict, really, till the day I die. I get it. I understand it. The difference between what I say recovered it basically means I'm in remission from my disease today because I'm in fit spiritual condition, talking to my God every single day, carrying my higher power's message to other people via these 12 steps and, and keeping my life and personal life in order. So that's why I use the word recovered because this big book constantly talks about recovered alcoholics, people with whom the problem has been solved. You know, uh, it, just, it, it just always talks about that and it, and it, that's the way it was, and that's the way it is in my world. So anybody who's passed their seventh step and working on their eighth and ninth steps, they, they start calling themselves recovered in meetings. And you know what? It turns a lot of heads because it makes people uncomfortable, but it also makes people say, whoa, I want what that person has. So I've gotten a lot more of, whoa, I want what that person has more than I've got Scott you know, arguing with me because nobody will ever win in an argument against me because I know how to argue and I know, I know, how, to just, I know how to win a debate, but whatever. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, the, that's where I directly go in the big book. But all throughout the big book, keep reading it, keep looking, and look for the word recovered all over the place. So Thank that's, you, that's why I do it. You're welcome. Thank you, Lori, for the question. Thanks to all for your questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Scott, for your time and energy in carrying this message to us this morning. I'm going to close a vision for you with the way we always close a vision for you, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.